Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be learning about how newsrooms are using open source investigation to uncover what's happening in the Russia-Ukraine war. This interview is from an event that took place in June 2022, hosted by datajournalism.com and the Sigma Awards. It's no secret Ukraine is facing a pivotal moment in the Russian invasion. For the past five months, the world has witnessed everything from alleged war crimes to propaganda, as well as mis- and disinformation. This is alongside mass migration, coupled with rising inflation and an energy crisis that grows deeper by the day. But how are reporting teams, both in the field and in the newsroom, navigating the coverage of this information war? And what's the best approach to leveraging the tools to develop an investigative mindset for this forensic reporting? To fully understand this, we sat down with Owen McGuire, an editor for Bellingcat, Haley Willis, a visual investigations reporter from the New York Times, and Francois Destier, a journalist with AFP's digital verification team. All that's coming up after this. Support for this episode of Conversations with Data and the following message come from Flockynet.is. Flockynet is a web hosting company that was established in Iceland to provide safe harbor for freedom of speech, free press, and whistleblower projects. The company operates data centers in Iceland, Romania, and Finland. Flockynet's core values revolve around privacy and freedom of speech, while providing autonomous, incorruptible, and flexible solutions optimized to help you spread your ideas freely. Now let's take a listen to our conversation with Bellingcat's Owen McGuire, the New York Times' Haley Willis, and AFP's Francois Destier. Thanks all for coming in uh, today to join us for this conversation. I just want to kick off uh, the first question with Owen. Let's start with you. Now, Bellingcat has been at the forefront of investigating and verifying information on Russia even before this invasion began. I just wonder if you could quickly give us some examples um, of information that you and the Bellingcat team have discovered as a result of OSINT techniques. And, you know, to what extent does this contribute to the detection of certain human rights violations? Yeah. Um, hi, Tara. So, hi. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, like you mentioned, um, so Bellingcat's been doing this for a while now. Even because Bellingcat was founded in 2014, but even before that, um, Elliot Higgins, our founder, had been kind of obsessively uh, geolocating and chronolocating incidents around the Arab Spring and the likes of uh, Libya and Syria. Um, but I guess. Yeah, we began in 2014 and uh, a few days after, uh, sort, of, uh, sort of quick introduction, I guess, to, to what Bellingcat was going to be all about. Um, MH17 was shot down over eastern Ukraine, so Bellingcat became sort of very closely involved in investigating that and um, uh, using social media, uh, uh, developing these kind of techniques of, of, of verification and essentially tracking the book missile that, that shot down ME-17 on its journey from Russia to the launch site in eastern Ukraine. Um, since then, uh, we've done so much um, uh, tracking Russian spies throughout Europe, the poisoning of Alexei Navalny and other 
Russian opposition politicians uh, using some of the techniques, same techniques we might have developed or, or used in, in eastern Ukraine to um, investigate conflicts in uh, Syria and Yemen as well, and all those kind of human rights um, violations that, that went on there. And this has all sort of played up into where we've um, ended up now at the start of the conflict, um, and we've been working on a couple of things. Um, you mentioned kind of human rights and um, violations and, and what we've kind of focused on since the start of the conflict primarily is uh, civilian harm, so instances of civilian harm in Ukraine. So um, our main project um, has been our civilian harm map where we have um, uh, used uh, a lot of our sort of volunteers to, to help um, find incidents. I mean, there's been such a volume, um, as I'm sure the other guys on the call will say as well, um, and essentially locate, okay, where where has there been an airstrike? Where has there been um, an incident that might have hit a, an apartment building or a school or uh, a hospital, uh, something like that, and sort of brought it all together in this kind of visualisation map. So um, these incidents now are recorded, um, and anyone who wants to 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 sort of look and and you can go back by day, month, week, even, um, and see all these incidents that have happened um, throughout the conflict. Um, so yeah, using kind of the the techniques um, we've developed uh, over the years has kind of really helped us, um, I guess, uh, report on the conflict the way that we have, um, and hopefully provide useful information for you know the general public, people in Ukraine, um, and also potentially in the future for for justice and accountability projects if such projects get off the ground. That that was fascinating. Thank you, Owen. And I just want to switch over to you, Haley. Now, your team has done some stellar work using OSINT techniques, satellite images, whatnot, have you, um, to verify information and covering this conflict. Um, talk to us about what are some of the challenges and the most challenging investigations you've been working on so far with this war using OSINT, um, you know, and what kind of data sources, what are your go-to data sources for trying to verify this and what have you learned? Yeah, absolutely. Personally, thanks so much for, for having me. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, something that I'm sure both my fellow panelists um, know the story well, um, is what happened, of course, in Bucha in Ukraine, right outside of Kiev. Um, we did a story about a few days after footage started coming out of that town, after the Russians had pulled out, um, showing essentially bodies lying in the streets. Um, we investigated this. The reason I bring it up now, I don't think it was the most challenging story in terms of necessarily, like, it was very difficult to find the location or it was, um, it required a lot of advanced technology. But I think what made it challenging is the speed at which the disinformation about that, that footage came out from, from the Russian side. Um, and it kind of required us to, to work quickly in terms of how can we combat that. Um, our team generally likes to take an approach of, you know, we want to investigate something for months. You know, we want to go into the field as well as use our open source techniques. We want to speak to everyone. But the, the speed at which we saw Russia basically denying what had happened in Bucha required us to kind of work quickly and, and think um, creatively about how we could uh, investigate that. So I'll just play a little bit of this footage. Like I said, I'm sure my fellow panelists and probably many of the people watching have seen this. Um, it is graphic imagery, but the resolution is pretty low, so you won't see anything um, too graphic. This, this video in particular was posted by the Ukrainian Armed Forces. 
Um, and uh, basically what the camera is being pointed at and what you're seeing in the street are, are bodies lying in the street. Um, obviously, the, the kind of first approach to, to any footage like this um, uh, for us open source investigative reporters is where did this happen? In terms of tools we use for that, we'll talk more about that later, but of course, satellite imagery, street view imagery. In this case, it was not a very difficult video to locate. Um, this is a, an image from Street View and overlaid an image from the video. This is Yablinska uh, Street in Bucha. So very quickly, we were able to establish where this was, but the question still remained what exactly had happened. Um, Russia and Russia's supporters came out with a lot of disinformation, like I said, firstly saying that these people were actors, that they were seen moving in the video, and actually Bellingcat um, did a, a great piece kind of debunking some of those claims. Um, the, the later Russian narrative, this is a statement from their official telegram channel, was that not a single person suffered violent action while Russia was in control of the town, um, that these people were all killed after Russia pulled out, and they cited the exact date that their units withdrew, uh, March 30th. So, you know, this was a, a great thing for us to investigate as kind of accountability journalists. Russia saying one thing, they pulled out on the 30th, this didn't happen before then. Can we prove that's not the case? So for that, we we also looked to um, satellite imagery, high resolution satellite imagery. So we looked to Maxar satellite imagery. This is a satellite image from Bucha from March 18th. Um, this is very high resolution imagery, which basically means that um, it's sub meter. All you need to know with that is you can see anything larger than a meter in this type of imagery, which would include, of course, human bodies. Um, looking closely at the imagery. We saw these, what appear to be dark spots on the street. Um, here's a, an image annotating them. Um, the first image is from February before Russia took control of the town. And then this image is March 19th, which you'll note is 11 days before the Russians said they pulled out. Um, so we saw these bodies on the street for multiple days. So clearly these weren't actors lying there. They were there for a period of multiple weeks. And just as further corroboration, you can then align that satellite imagery with the original video um, to confirm that what we're seeing here isn't just, for example, like a skid mark on the road or a trash bag. These are, in fact, the, the same, um, unfortunately, human bodies that you see in, in the video. And we're able to confirm then 100% Russia's story is not true. These people were in the street. Um, during the weeks that Russia was in control of the town and before March 30th. And I'm just curious, like Owen was talking about, are you also thinking that some of what you're uncovering will be used in war crimes and maybe even used in the International Criminal Court at some point? Is that the hope? Yeah, I mean, certainly we're placed a little bit differently than the folks at Bellingcat and that we can't as... Uh, in a news organization directly work with, with investigators and sort of collecting and archiving this information. But we are, um, and have always said that our, our mandate is accountability journalism. And so we put the work out there with the hopes that there will be forms of accountability and whether that be um, through the, the legal route. Obviously, once our reporting is out there, it's, it's great to be seen, um, to see it be used for those purposes and to kind of document these crimes. These right. Um, and let's jump to you, Francois. Um, tell us about AFP and what you're doing in terms of digital verification. 
And maybe you could just talk us through some of your go-to sources, you know, that have helped verify some information that is on the ground. Uh, well, uh, as part of the digital verification team at AFP, we're, uh, well, it's basically two folds. We're asked a lot by uh, either our reporters on the ground on the different bureaus around when there is like a viral video, uh, viral photo uh, that shows something violent or some an, an event, a breaking news event. Uh, we would be asked by our bosses to uh, make sure that it happened uh, when it's supposed to, like, it actually shows what it's supposed to be showed, what, it, what it's supposed to show, that it that it's recent. Um, this is one of the thing one of the thing we're doing, and we're also u- helping the reporters on the ground um, as uh, as. Uh, with our OSINT techniques to find information on either to find uh, testimonies, to find people on the ground, uh, to make sure that uh, a claim is founded and they maybe should go there to verify if there was indeed a breaking news event. Uh, this is the type of thing we would be we would be doing on a day-to-day basis. Um, as far as the go-to sources we're using, um, so we are, we're a pretty big press agency. So I guess one of our biggest strengths is the number. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of people uh, on the ground, uh, two teams rotating uh, on the field, two teams of three, at least three person uh, all the time and going where they feel they can go when it's safe and when, they're, when it's needed. Uh, then we have the bureaus around the world who, we, who will ask uh, like the institutional answer uh, to verify claims. Uh, and then there is us. Uh, and of course, the, the, the work also of the entire uh, OSIN community that uh, it can be pros uh, like Bellingcat, like, uh, or it can also be, that was really striking during this conflict, the way a lot of people actually came together to verify stuff. Uh, so of course, as a press agency, as a, uh, like a very reliable uh, media like Bellingcat and New York Times, you have to uh, double check uh, but it always gives you like that small lead that you can start working with. Uh, and what Ailey showed uh, with this video of the car going in Bucha, at first, I think the first claim that came out was that those were uh, people uh, moving. Uh, and it was very, very quickly debunked by just like analysts of images uh, who showed that it was just like a, a dirt on the on the windshield, windshield this type of... Uh, this type of, uh, of information. Now, to go a little bit, so we would do the same verification, but of course, with like uh, readers, you always want to go a little bit deeper. Uh, I don't, what, what we did specifically on that on that one, uh, the thing we could count on at the time was, uh, was the pictures of our uh, journalists that were there. So the video showed a, a lot of, uh, a lot of bodies. And I think this, the guy circled in red was one of the guy that was supposed to be moving, who was supposed to be a an actor, uh, and uh, so I'll, I'll show you very quickly. But our text journalist, when he went there, you're right on the scene. He actually photographed this guy a couple of times, uh, so he sent us the picture, and we could match it with like a uh, visual cues on the on the on the on the image. And they actually went back the next day to see that the guy was actually at the same spot. I'll, I won't show you everything, but uh, it really helped uh, debunk the fact that th- those were not uh, those were not actors. 
We had people that saw them, actual journalists. Uh, we had testimonies for people from people in the in the um, in the village that saw them, and we had the images to prove it. Uh, so that would be that would be that would be one of the big sources we would use. Uh, and then we would see if we if we could do the same demonstration. What they what they did uh, with the satellite imagery, uh, we actually because we're all kind of helping out each other, we could see if we can actually do the same because a, a big goal of like the fact checking verification is that everyone can, could actually do it to some extent, I guess. Uh, and if we ended up uh, at the same conclusion than them, uh, we would go like, okay, the new New York Times published this story. We could review the images ourselves and. Uh, and it shows that those bodies have been in place for a couple of weeks already. And Francois, how many people do you have like in Ukraine working for AFP at the moment? In Ukraine itself? Yes. I don't have the exact number because it's always changing a little bit. Uh, from what I, I know, there are two teams of uh, three, uh, but they're moving around a lot. Some people are coming in, some people are going out. And we're actually moved around the bureau to uh, countries nearby uh, to make sure we can uh, get in and out uh, and uh, and be as as efficient uh, as could be. So there is a specific crisis cell that has been set in uh, in Paris uh, to oversee everything that's related to the conflict, and we're part of that. We're using like of course uh, Russian speaking people, Ukrainian speaking people. Uh, that's that's a great help to verify even like telegram posts, uh, 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 the writing on some signs in the street that you have to verify. This is really, really uh, an important resource for us. Right. And I wonder if you could all sort of just share with me what has been your toughest challenge when you are trying to verify information about this war? Um, I don't know. Owen, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, I mean, you can answer that question in a couple of ways, I think. So, um, you, you talk about talk about our kind of, sort of time map when we're looking to verify all these incidents of potential civilian harm. The incidents that are in rural areas with very few identifiable features, that's tricky. Trying to, you know, in, in most instances, if you have, you know, a strike in a city um, or a town where you, you do have identifiable features, you can do a geolocation and a chronolocation. The trickier part after that becomes assigning responsibility, um, and I think you know the New York Times has done, especially done great work on that so far. Uh, but I guess that's a mix of the kind of the traditional sent reporting and then the on, on the ground reporting too. Um, you there there are possibilities to do that through just OSINT, but it takes a lot longer. Um, but for me, I think, and I don't know if, if Francois and Haley agree with this, but for me, one of the the harder things, I guess, is just the sheer volume. The sheer volume of information that's coming out like there's so many videos there's so there's so many incidents and yeah that's been one of the tricky things like trying to get all that log it verify it it's a really big operation i was gonna say the same thing i just think the volume of the content in this conflict is just completely overwhelming you know you're in hundreds of telegram channels that posts are being sent like five posts a minute keeping up with that also you know add on to that this level of you know, there has been a war in Ukraine in the past. So videos from the Donbass in 2014 are being shared as happening now. Just like the content that people can dig into for this is endless. In some stores we work on, for example, we did a story on Mozambique last year. The problem with that was not enough visuals. You know, we were like calling people constantly trying to find here. It's the opposite. You have almost so much 
wading through that to figure out what's the most relevant, um, what might be old. Uh, it takes a lot of time and it's very difficult. Uh, I, I second everything. Uh, you are, you are, you're verifying a video. There is five more in the queue, basically, uh, and a new breaking news event happening. Uh, also, well, maybe it's only related to France, but uh, when we started in 2018, 19, uh, everything was mostly on Twitter and Facebook, which were, uh, I guess, more open. Uh, it was easy to find, it was easier to find the person who posted first. Maybe you could ask some questions. Uh, now everything is going super fast on Telegram. It's super hard to, to actually find who shot the video, what's the context around it. Uh, was it even posted on a pro-Russian, pro-Ukrainian? So you, you, you kind of lost in all that. Um, also, uh, it's it's turned into a very uh, a very hard a, a very you have to be an expert <laughs> on some stuff and for example I'm not an expert in like uh, Russian weaponry uh, <laughs> so it takes time to because when there is a claim for example no this is a Russian missile no this is an Ukrainian missile I guess a media like Belinkat uh, is very uh, good at that because they have been working on on uh, on that specific thematic for for a long time. But uh, when all of a sudden you, you, you get asked to know if a, mis if a missile is actually Russian or Ukrainian, uh, basically you can't answer. You have to go through uh, like military experts in France. It takes a lot of time. And then this, the, the, time, the time frame starts to become harder. Uh, and I guess la lastly, some of the images are, are pretty rough to, to look at. So uh, one of the hard parts to go through all this verification work is find a way to dis dissociate or um, make sure that you, and, and we're not even on the ground, so uh, we can only imagine what, what they're going through, the reporters, but uh, find a way to dissociate uh, what you're looking at, what is happening, and still, because it's still useful, so you still want to do it, but uh, it's been rough sometimes to just watch images for a couple of hours. I can <laughs> I imagine. I just had to what yeah. Francois said as well. There, like an added complication with the weaponry, is that you know both former Soviet Union countries and there's you know, Tokyo two missile both have them, both have used them in the past. So if you're looking at a strike with a Tokyo missile and then you know you're like, okay, who has that? Who who was that? Both sides on that on that weaponry. It's yeah, trying to figure it out. It's hard. And on a very practical note, I wonder how have you all been coping? I imagine. You all don't, aren't fluent in Russian. So are you using Google Translate and like coloring stuff in to figure out what, I mean, is, is that your go-to source? Do you have a translator in-house or a friend you ask? How do you kind of, yeah, or are you just kind of learning the alphabet as you go <laughs> and certain words? Uh, I definitely did not learn Russian yet. Uh, well, well, as I said, for AFP, it could be different for the, the, the my two other panelists, but we have a, a cell dedicated to that. So I guess for the very basic uh, claims or uh, information, I would I would use translation tools. But when I have to dig in, when I have to verify very very specific uh, signs or or uh, or claims that are more complicated, I would go through that crisis cell and ask them to. Uh, translate me word for word. Give me the co the quotes, and uh, and then it would be a back and forth. Uh, yeah, that's that's for AFP. Definitely, Google Translate is an open source investigator's best friend. You know, like most journalists have beats 
like your beat is Central Africa or your beat is Ukraine. And then you probably speak the language. I always say for visual investigations, our beat is visual evidence, which means we work across a lot of contexts and don't always speak the language. Um, that being said, Google Translate is very good. You know, the, the best tool is the Google Translate phone app. Because if you see like a sign in the background of a video, the app has a camera function that you can literally point it at that sign and it will translate it for you. We're also very lucky on the visual investigations team to have um, a Ukrainian colleague, Dina Kabin, on staff. Um, and then obviously we can dip further into the entirety of the New York Times and our, our field reporters. But um, Definitely, Google Translate is very helpful. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've got a few Russian and Ukrainian speakers on staff. Um, and also as well, we've got, um, I think as Francois alluded to, like a lot of our focus in the past, just the way that Bellingcat has naturally developed, I think because MH17 happened so soon after Bellingcat was formed and then the sort of conflict in the Donbass continued and it attracted a lot of people who were interested in that, you know, in that issue, in that war. Um, yeah, we, we have kind of a lot of people who have knowledge about those places and also speak the languages too. But in saying that, like, I don't speak Russian either. So yeah, Google Translate is also my best friend. So yeah, that's really useful. And I wonder if all of you could share, like, what are your top go-to tools that you cannot live without when you're covering this war right now? Like, apart from Google Translate, uh, what other satellite imagery tools do you use? Or yeah, any, anything else? verification wise so there's there's tools to use as well but i think and this is going to sound like it's going to sound really bad but it's like state of mind so it's like uh you know um uh obsessive attention to detail the ability to kind of sit and really kind of try and solve a problem or get through a problem all of that are and there's probably more that i'm not mentioning there but that's kind of the basis of it um then beyond that you know looking through social media posts uh what else you know telegram channels having your twitter searches set up your telegram you know i think hayley mentioned it earlier on like 500 telegram channels or something like that and each of them are going off um we have access to another new york times has access to maxar i'm sure afp probably does as well but we've got access to planet it's another kind of satellite imagery provider which is really useful have to pay for it but um yeah it's it's yeah, you know anyone can pay and, and can access it um, yeah, uh, actually one thing that I find, I find really useful uh, or I find sort of encouraging people to use is NASA firms data. So that kind of captures, you know, um, anomalies around, you know, is there a fire in a particular area? So was it a, that can help you define whether there was a strike in a potential area on one day. So if you have a video that says, oh, this strike happened in Kiev at 9 p.m. on the 20th, 7th of February or something like that, you can look at NASA firms and if something shows up there, then you can think, okay, maybe there's something to that claim and look to use that to further verify it. Um, there's lots more tools, but that's the ones that are coming into my head right now. So I'll let the guys um, explain a bit more. Echo all of that. I, it's funny hearing that question I literally wrote down. It's more about the mindset than it is about the tools. So totally agree with that. But in terms of like tools that are useful, definitely silent imagery, um, like mentioned, we we work with Planet and Maxar, which are paid service providers, but there are publicly available satellite imagery services that a lot of use as well. Obviously, Google Earth, Satellites.pro, Sentinel Hub. Um, we use a lot of Street View imagery. So for Ukraine, there actually is a lot just on Google and Yandex. There's also Mapillary, which is a Street View website, which is really useful. 
um, in terms of searching Telegram, Telegogo is um, basically like a search engine for searching Telegram channels, which is really useful. Um, reverse image search engines um, for finding content that might be old. And then honestly, like our number one tool in every investigation we do, not just this one, is just Google Sheets. Like I think people think we're very... Any of us who do this type of work are very technological and very fancy, but very often, like going back to those basic tools, just something where you can easily catalog information as you're finding it, add locations as you're finding it. Nothing is better than a spreadsheet. Yeah, and not, not much to add. Uh, the uh, reverse image search, uh, there is a tool that we, a uh, little plugin that, that we developed at AFP called Invid that uh, helps you do a reverse image search. Uh, with several um, search engine because sometimes Google will give you an answer and the index will give you another answer. Uh, always useful. Um, Google Street View. Uh, now I think we, we went over the most basic and open uh, tools that we could that we could use. Uh, advanced search. Yeah, nothing nothing to add in that pretty much. One other thing that actually just came to mind there, which is really useful, SunCalc. We talk about geolocation and chronolocation. And that's a really useful tool for sort of figuring out um, exactly when something happened or trying to get closer to when something happened. Brilliant. And I mean, a lot of you were mentioning Telegram, and I'm just curious, where are you getting most of the videos and images that you're verifying? Like, are people sending them to you or are you checking different social media sites? Um, and what social media sites and what, um, you know, uh, what platforms like WhatsApp? Telegram, Viber, is it just Facebook? Like, where, where's, where do you seem to be finding everything? Uh, I guess everyone has his own little uh, techniques for that, uh, for monitoring and finding Telegram groups, uh, uh, alias at Telegogo. Uh, what we do, uh, what works well, right? <laughs> what's funny is that you end up having those 500 Telegram pages, and some of them are sharing a lot of disinformation and all of a sudden, they would close. Another one would pop off. Work had to be has to be done again. Um, what works well for me, uh, I see disinformation, especially in this in this conflict. Everything starts on. Uh, I'm only speaking about misinformation, disinformation. Everything pretty much starts on Telegram, and then it seeps through Twitter, and mostly ends up on Facebook. Uh, but on those two last social media where it's much more open, sometimes it's just a screenshot of a Telegram group that you end up finding uh, afterward. Uh, uh, you notice a Twitter post that's sharing a video uh, or a screenshot of a Telegram group, and that's how you end up finding it afterward on Telegram. And you see that there are 15 other videos that are also false. Uh, this would be one of the tools. Uh, then. Again, we have our reporters on the ground that are actually involved uh, into uh, um, crowdsourcing testimonies. And those uh, uh, people that are living in Ukraine would tell them, OK, I'm on, a, I'm on a Telegram group. They said that. Could you do you have any opinion on that? And if they feel like it's important enough, uh, it will move forward, the, move up the ladder and uh, we will have to. Uh, uh, have access to that Telegram group, uh, but yeah, that's that's one or two ways that we end up having those 500 Telegram groups uh, in a page. I mean, definitely Telegram is, I would say, the bulk of where we get visuals from. I think 
this is the case with any conflict, but very often like videos and photos are shared on private, like very, very private channels before they make it to something like, and I don't even mean like a private telegram channel that you can get access to. I mean, like someone sends it to a friend on WhatsApp, they send it to another friend on WhatsApp, then it ends up on telegram. So I think telegram has been like the closest we could get in on a mass sense to like where a lot of stuff is being posted. Um, but of course we, we also, um, as journalists are contacting people directly. So have people sending us videos over WhatsApp. A lot of times what we'll do is a lot of these telegram channels are like aggregators. So they just have content sent to them and they post it. So sometimes if we see something really interesting, we'll reach out to whoever runs that telegram channel, ask if the person who filmed that video would be willing to speak with journalists or if they have any other footage they'd be willing to share. Uh, and then just like Francois with AFP, we have folks on the ground who are um, collecting testimony, but especially the field team that we work directly with. So our video field team, um, basically one of their number one mandates is, is every single person they talk to, obviously interview, get their story, but also ask any visuals that you have. Can you show them with us? Yeah, Telegram's a really big one for us as well. I mean, it seems to be so much, uh, yeah, exactly like Hayley says, like it's probably shared to someone on WhatsApp or privately on Facebook or privately on, on some other site. And then, you know, it makes us way onto Telegram. Like there are these aggregators there um, who are just putting out, you know, conflict material. Um, but if you look at our, so our civilian harm map, so we've got, you know, stuff that's posted, images and videos that's posted on Facebook, on VK, if you contacted the Russian, basically the Russian Facebook, uh, Twitter, Telegram, uh, TikTok as well, actually. So not so much during the conflict, I've found, but um, we, we've been working with the Center for Information Resilience as well, and all our sort of civilian harm data is on their, um, yeah, their, their Ukraine-Russia monitor map, which is another, I can share that um, uh, afterwards if, if anyone wants to wants to see it or if the audience wants to wants to see it but really useful tool but leading up to the leading up to the conflict they were finding or it seemed to me like they were finding a lot of uh, sort of um, I guess videos of troop movements within Russia on TikTok and um, that seemed to be and I know NBC News did a, did a, a really good report on that too um, so yeah from, 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 from what I'm seeing anyway primarily tel Telegram but you are seeing things sort of come up on these other platforms too and I'm curious, like, how important is methodology for you all when you're doing an investigation and you're trying to debunk something? Like, are are you, I mean, Owen, you're an editor, so I'm sure you're coming at the people who are coming up with the investigation and say, okay, how did this happen? Like, I need to understand that, right? Is that something that you're mindful of when you're editing? Yeah, but then, I mean, I guess that's kind of baked into the DNA of Bellingcat. We're all about kind of showing the method, or that's what we try to be about, so if you can't explain it to me who's who's you know not an investigator in the same way that you know the people who work for Bellingcat are and they have that kind of obsession and that kind of ability to sit down at a computer screen for like 12 13 hours at a time or something like that but um yeah we'll always try to be open with that and explain the methodology so people can retrace it just to be fully transparent and um, that usually <laughs> leads to very long articles um but I think that's useful in terms of providing I guess a public service or something in the public interest um so yeah that's always something that we'll try and be sort of open about and i know like yeah afp and the new york times definitely um they do it in a different style from bellingcat but it's the same thing like the video that Haley showed earlier on that was just a really neat way of just being completely transparent about okay here's this this video footage and here's a satellite imagery and here it is beside each other so see for yourself basically and that the methodology is clear 
and, and the story is super clear as well. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty much the same. We're trying to explain step by step what we did for the investigation as much as we could, as we can. Uh, hopefully we have op open source or at least like identifiable sources with like uh, on, uh, on comments and not uh, someone said that we cannot identify. Sometimes it's not the case, but we try to avoid that. Uh, and the way I see it, the way we see it at AFP is uh, the person who is reading sh in the best case scenario should be able to redo the exercise uh, and uh, arrive to the same conclusion. Uh, it's a, it's a way we imagine things. That way we are actually, even the more uh, doubtful uh, readers uh, are going to, at least at the end, be like, okay, I, I could do it and I reach the same conclusion as them. Uh, that's uh, that's a, that's the way we do it. Uh, that's the way we try to do it, at least at AFP. I do agree that sometimes it makes for a, a reading that's uh, less uh, artistic than the usual AFP report, AP report, or a New York Times report, but uh, it still is necessary. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I mean, definitely we, we have a very different writing style from some of our other colleagues at the Times. Um, I agree with everything that was said. I would also just say in terms of methodology and transparency something that we're very careful of and i know my fellow panelists are is also being very transparent about what you don't know in a in conflict it's practically impossible to know everything like it's there's there are so many facets to what's going on so in the example i showed earlier for example bucha like all that satellite imagery analysis did is it showed us that those people had been on the street for weeks and that it was while russia was in control of the town that told us nothing about how those people were killed. We do not know that yet. It's something that we've continued to investigate. That takes a lot more work, right? Like maybe they were shot by a Russian sniper. Maybe they were shot up close by a Russian soldier. Maybe they were killed um, as a result of Ukrainian shelling into Russian forces, you know? Uh, and we were very clear about that when we published. This is what we don't know yet from this. But what we do know is that Russia's statement that none of these people were killed while they were there is false. We have to check our biases, even if we really personally do want Ukraine to win. Um, I wonder how that works with your investigations and how you check your biases. Yeah, I would say we're very careful about, and actually, we don't make sweeping statements like that on the visual investigations team for the exact reason that you're stating. But you do have to be conscious of biases and also just like focusing on the open source part of it, like the biases of the internet and like where the footage is coming from, you know, like because this war is happening in Ukraine, a lot of the footage that's being uploaded is being uploaded by Ukrainians. Um, and there's nothing wrong with this, but the fact of the matter is that a Ukrainian is probably more likely to upload a video of a Russian convoy that's been destroyed than of a Ukrainian convoy that's been destroyed. So are we really getting an accurate representation of who's winning or losing based on open source information? Probably not, which is why, you know, we use it to verify very specific things as opposed to like try and see trends of the entire war. Yeah, the, this part of the analysis, we would leave to the crisis cell and they would reach out to like 15, 20 different uh, war experts that would say, okay, they lose, they lost this part of the of Ukraine. And so it means that those troops are moving on and then the infographics desk would do something. Uh, that's something that we would use as background in, in our stories, but we would not, we cannot verify that type of claim. And you have to accept that too, that uh, a lot of a lot of disinformation, misinformation on claims that you are, are unsure of, you just can't, 
you just can't. You make sure that you pick claims that you're actually you can actually go go through with. Yeah, I fully agree with the guys. It's, it's I mean, open source can can let you know some things, but there's also maybe lots of known unknowns and unknown unknowns. So, yeah, like you may know that a strike happened somewhere. You may know when it happened, but the question about who is responsible for that that's a different question altogether. And it, if, I mean, from talking from Bellingcat's perspective, um, it is possible to, in some, in some circumstances, it may be possible to um, attribute particular attacks, but it takes a lot of investigation, a lot of digging, a long time. It's not something that, unless, unless there's like a really clear, obvious uh, uh, a person, you can say, okay, that, that was a person standing with a gun. He had a Russian army patch or a Ukrainian army patch on his shoulder. You can you can you can then attribute that, but a lot of the time it takes a lot of investigation, like a missile strike, for example. Like, okay, the directionality of that strike, where did it come from? Okay, who was what what troops were in this area around that time? You can begin to narrow things down, and that can inform your investigation. But that's not something that's very easy to do. So, yeah, sticking with what you know and what you can say, and what you you know, comparing that to public statements to disprove what you know, in, in the case of Butcher, what Russia was saying, that open source can be very useful there. But yeah, those broader things much harder question and yeah um best left for other types of reporting i think what Haley said about butcha and the satellite imagery analysis he said this could uh, uh, this could be done in a couple of days lucky for us because we had the imagery and everything but as she said uh, who did that who did the entire thing you if you if you wanted to do this with us since you maybe you would not reach it ever because you would need the footage and if you wanted to go to the bottom of it, and I, I'm pretty sure people are actually trying right now, but it's they're still trying. It's been two months, uh, and you have to be on the ground for that. At some point, as a journalist, you have to keep it simple and say, okay, I need to be there. If I want to get to the bottom of it, I need to, to be there to talk to people, to have access to information. Uh, there's limits to things you can do with us, too. And I'm just going to bring in a question um, from uh, one of people in our audience, Andrew Salerno-Garthwaite says, if a lot of visual investigation is debunking and countering disinformation, do you ever feel like the direction for your work is dictated by bad actors? Maybe, but isn't journalism a lot of that as well? Um, uh, so I, I, we actually made a conscious decision at the start of the conflict. It was like, okay, where can we be useful? Um, and um, where, where's the kind of gap in the space for us? And we felt that civilian harm was was the place. And we also felt like, what is disinformation when people are dying as well? So it's like, okay, what what is important for us to get to? So we just that's why we decided to to sort of focus on those incidents of civilian harm. But in saying that, there's also uh, those instances where there's potentially disinformation. So Bucha was one. The striking Kramer first was another. Where we thought, okay, let's try and look at that and let's compare what the open source, you know information tells us that the material tells us compared to the statements made by be that the Ukrainians or the or the Russians. I'm not so sure if dictated is the right word, but I mean certainly like I said before, we position ourselves as accountability journalists. And what comes out of that is like prioritizing where there is a someone in power that is putting out a certain narrative. And that narrative may or may not be correct. Um, so that is how we prioritize a lot of our work. Um, but I will say, like, at least in VI, um, in this conflict in particular, we have focused more on 
the issue of debunking and disinformation, but it's actually not really our priority, like fact-checking. We usually do kind of larger scale things. Um, and we also, I think, you know, in this question of what do we focus on, what do we not, um, similarly as Bellingcat, we obviously prioritize issues where there's civilian harm, where there's potential war crimes. Obviously, like the, the question is suggesting where Russia or another bad actor might be spreading false information. But an example of the opposite is, you know, early on in the war, we did a piece um, on all of these videos that have been coming out of Ukrainian civilians confronting Russian soldiers. They weren't being used in any sort of disinformation sense. They weren't really showing anything in terms of a war crime or the progression of the war. Um, but especially for, for my Ukrainian colleagues, they, they saw this as really important context. And so we verified those videos, where were they taken, and, and did a small kind of write-up on, on what they showed. Um, and that was a decision driven not by, you know, disinformation. So I think it, it goes both ways. We have uh, basically it's a day-to-day discussion in the newsroom. Uh, should we, when you have those uh, hundreds of video coming at you, you have to decide whether it's worth it. Uh, you have a, you may, you also have a gut feeling. Okay, this is disinformation, but is it worth it that I actually work a couple of days, a couple of hours, uh, several days on that? Uh, so. We take into account the time that it takes. We take into account the harm that can be done, even though that's subjective. But uh, as again, civilian harm, uh, massive disinformation uh, theory. Uh, we take into account the reach uh, of the post, the videos. Did it touch only five, ten people, or uh, was it very, very widespread? Uh, is it uh, something that, like the Russian emoji said, or the Ukrainian emoji said, or is it something that? A couple of uh, citizens in Kiev said uh, these are all uh, uh, metrics, parameters that you take into account before diving into a story uh, to know beforehand if it's worth it or not. Uh, yeah, we all have limited resources, so I'm sure it's difficult to decide, okay, what am I actually going to focus on? Um, we've got another question from uh, someone from the audience, Amandra. Currently, these teams are exposed to a lot of sensitive content. Do editors support them in any way to prevent the impact of this? That's a good question. Yeah, um, a lot of traumatic imagery, a lot of really graphic imagery. Um, yeah, we we work with the Dark, uh, dark Sensor um, for trauma, um, and that's a really useful resource. Um, and yeah, I guess also as an editor, like you've kind of got to be wary of of, of the people you're working, not wary of the people you're working with, but wary of the content that they're viewing and, and the impact it's having on them as well and thinking when's right to have a conversation with them. So yes, that is, and not just in this conflict, that, that goes for all types of uh, open source sort of work as well, because a lot of the times it's, it's very heavy subject matter. I mean, I'm just thinking in the last year, like the stuff we've done, the Tigray conflict as well, it's another one that's, you know, um, it's, it's difficult from a different perspective, I think, in terms of how people engage with it, because there's less content, but they really drill down into very specific issues because there's less content, or they may really drill down into a really specific graphic video because, you know, that's the only one there is. And that the impact that has is different from, you know, lots of graphic, just so much overwhelming you type thing. So yes, to answer the question simply is yes. And um, yeah, we do have sort of practices uh, and policies in place to hopefully sort of deal with that or hopefully deal with that. 
I will add on to the place for the Dart Center. They're an amazing resource. We've done several sessions with them um, since the, the start of the conflict. Um, and I would just say, I think a lot of times, I come from a human rights background where we had a lot more time to kind of focus on this. In journalism, of course, the speed of work makes it difficult to kind of step back. And I think that just requires them having really open conversations between reporters and editors um, and like setting aside time to kind of like think about how you're being impacted and also kind of approach the work with a certain mindset. I think in terms of like the issue of resiliency and how the sensitive content affects people, I think many people who do this work struggle with feeling bad about it because we have a sense of guilt. Like I'm certainly not Ukrainian and suffering from these crimes and I'm also not usually in the field. So I'm not even seeing it directly. Why am I feeling so bad? You know, I should just suck it up. Um, And I think breaking out of that guilt mindset and seeing it more as like working towards sustainability for your work. You know, a lot of people who report on war burn out in, two years and that doesn't help anyone that certainly doesn't help the communities you're covering um and so like practicing techniques to to maintain your mental health is is better for the work in the long term and i think editors encouraging that mindset in in their journalists is always going to be a good thing uh for me we also had a couple of conversation a training uh they also set that up for like the photo editors of course because those are not working on disinformation but on real images sent by our uh, our teams of reporters uh and yeah we as i said we it's a struggle you you have to feel okay uh about saying no uh, also sometimes and be like okay this is too much for a day i i Hopefully, the editors are actually not putting pressure on you to like keep focusing on those images. Uh, but I do feel like it helps a lot when you are actually feeling useful. Uh, like you, you feel like what what you're doing, you're getting somewhere, and uh, this is something that's going to be useful for uh, as a story, as a something to be to be told. Uh, this helps, and also I guess everyone has his own little techniques. But for example, on the butcher thing. Uh, I would focus on other uh, visual cues than the violent imagery because you can, let's say you have to geolocate an image uh, of a violent scene. There is a lot of thing on the on the screen that you can focus on uh, without looking at the blood or the, the bodies. And that is actually much more useful than the, the violence. So it's, it's, well, it's little tricks. I guess everyone has some. <laughs> Marvelous. Well, on that note, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Um, but I really appreciate all of you coming on and sharing your perspective on how you're using OSINT in this war. And so thank you. It's been really interesting. Thanks, Thanks a lot. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today and to Flockynet for making this episode possible. Flockynet is a web hosting company that was established in Iceland to provide safe harbor for freedom of speech, free press, and whistleblower projects. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You could subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is an initiative by datajournalism.com, powered by the European Journalism Center and supported by Google News Initiative. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.